You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Hello and welcome to The Magnet Theater Podcast. I am your host, Louis Kornfeld, and this afternoon we are speaking to Charlie Whitcroft. Charlie, thanks for talking. Thank you for having me here. Charlie and I go way back. Yeah. This is going to be, I think, probably a little bit of a Nostalgia Fest episode since in preparing my thoughts about the conversation we could be having, I keep on going over and over again into the 10 year anniversary of the magnet, which is coming up. And you mm-hmm. and I were both here together at the beginning of the theater. Yeah. You and I go back beyond that and all the way to junior high school. We're up on 23 years, pal. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, we've, we've known each other longer than some like younger improvisers have been alive. Yeah. You know? I have people in my classes now who were born four or five years after you and I were already best friends. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It, I'll be lying if I say it doesn't make me feel a little bit sad sometimes. Yeah, it's it, but it should also make you feel happy, you know? Yeah. Let's, 23 years is a long time. That's pretty good. Yeah. I want to, like, just sort of, like, reminisce a little bit because we are amping up to the 10-year anniversary of the theater and, and like, I've been kind of reflecting a lot recently on kind of where we were at when it opened up and kind of the stuff that pulled us into the sphere of it. You're the kind of, like, ultimate example of that asshole who says I could never improvise and I have no interest in improvising and then got into it and immediately became a fantastic improviser. So I want to like go back because you've been a pain in the ass about that for as long as I've known you. Well, not, not recently. Not recently. Yeah. Yeah, Like way, way back. I'm talking (laughs) like up until I took an improv class. Yeah. Yeah. Going like you and I played Bob Cratchit and, and Ebenezer Scrooge together in the seventh grade Christmas production at I 49. And you were nothing but a pain in the ass about that. And you were complaining about everything that you had to do. So here's my first question. Why the hell were you in drama club if you hated it so damn much? Wow, I honestly, I don't remember. Was that, was that like a requirement? <laughs> no, no. In um, fact, I had a hell of a time getting in. That can't be. Because yeah. I, no, that can't be. It is. I don't remember ever actually like signing up for, you're talking about like Tony Romano's drama, yeah. right? Yeah. I don't remember ever signing up for that. It was just like a class or something. I don't know. No, I call foul on that because Miss Hideri had to pull strings to get me into that class because I was making so much trouble for her. Yeah, but people didn't like you. Like teachers, that is. People people liked people you. People liked me. Like, teachers liked me. She didn't like me. That's Yeah. Tony Romano liked me once I got into his drama class. All right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, I, I swear, I seriously have absolutely no recollection of signing up for that. It just, it was kind of like gym. It was kind of just something you went to at some point. You and I had two very different experiences of that. I've always been a little bit confused because you were in drama, but you weren't on debate team. Debate team seems to me like where you would have shown drama is always very confusing because you hated it. You never wanted to be on stage. Right. I was on a debate team, I think earlier, like in grade school or something. That doesn't count. All right. We're talking junior high school. We're talking serious business. Right, here. right. Um, yeah, uh, but then in high school, um, I don't know if you were in anything in high school, but in high school it was all, I liked being part of the drama productions, but it was all all stage crew stuff. Like I was never in a play in, in high school. It was all stage crew. Yeah, neither was I. Well, we were in stage crew together. Yeah. Those were good times, man. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, for a little bit of backstory, this is... This is the late 90s for you guys listening when students in high schools could get away with a lot more than they could in in the post-dark age world that we live in now. Oh, yeah. We in the stage crew had 
pretty full run of the place. We, we got away with a lot too. We did. It was yeah. awesome. They let us convert our own like space. We had our own yeah. like room that we could cut classes in and just go be in our room. Yeah. And we all wound up with like sets of keys to uh, rooms that we weren't supposed to have keys to. Like yeah. we were students and, yeah. and we had like janitor's keys and stuff. Yeah. It, it, what, out of curiosity, like what was the appeal for you? Because you were like, you were always the really resistant one. Like of the group, there's the core of us who, when Magnet first opened up, were kind of the crew that traveled together. You and me and Corey Grimes, Megan Gray. Um, and we all were together in high school. We all were part of video club. We were all doing our comics and doing our dumb whatever. Um, of the four of us, you were the one who was like really reluctant to start performing. So just out of curiosity, because I don't think we ever talked about this, what like kept you circling like drama and all that stuff back then? Well, with the, with the improv, it was probably just like, I, I mean, you guys were doing it for a good year before I started and I was going to see you guys. Like you were good. You were doing shows all the time at uh, Juby hall with yeah. the slow comedy shows with Armando. And that's prior to the magnet opening up. But there were even, even back then there were days where I was like seeing improv shows every night. I just didn't, I didn't have any interest in doing it. Like it was probably some of that was intimidation, like stage fright issues, you know, uh, or just being intimidated by, uh, I don't know, the thought of like trying, trying to entertain people, you Mm -hmm. know, um, I could go into, I could go into like how I sort of got over it. Yeah. I'd love to hear that. Cause I, this is all like, I am, I'm feeling very nostalgic today. (laughs) Sure. I'll get into reasons why in a little bit, but it sort of feels to me like on some level we're like at the end of a cycle and the beginning of a cycle. It sort of feels like we're at like a, a changing point. And, and you and I both got like heavily involved in the improv community and heavily involved in the early magnet at another moment in our lives that also felt to me like a major changing point. And I remember very distinctly the night that you, uh, 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 promised to sign up for Armando's class mm-hmm. very clearly. Cause it was the same night I finally got furniture. <laughs> See, I don't, I don't remember in that much detail, like that sort of, Oh, you know what? I do remember that was your apartment above your parents. And yeah. Stuff. We went to Ikea. Yeah. 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 I remember that. It was a very special night. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so yeah, talk a little bit about, about before I get too teary eyed, <laughs> uh, what made you change your mind? How did, how did, how did you go from pain in the ass to world-class improviser? Um, well, it definitely was like one of those moments of like change, like noticeable change. I was at the time in a graduate program in philosophy and kind of had my mind set on pursuing that and going for a PhD in, you know, teaching, um, you know, being, being a philosophy professor and I loved philosophy undergrad, like I majored in philosophy undergrad and I loved it, got to graduate school and I didn't love it so much. Like academic philosophy is fine on the undergraduate level because like mostly it's just a requirement. Like people have to take a certain number of courses. They're not high demand courses. So like it felt like professors almost like they backed off students. Like they tried to make it fun as much as they could, but they backed off on like the hardcore analytical stuff. So I remember some of my undergrad papers were as stupid as like, you know, my response, like as me to Plato's, uh, I don't know, one of Plato's dialogues where it's just all letters, you know? Yeah. 
Like that's the stupidest paper in the world, but the, the professor loved it. Like he encouraged it, you know? Yeah. Um, but anyway, graduate philosophy, very different story. Um, very, very boring, very, very like, it seemed to me like professional level academic philosophy is just full of creating problems that don't exist mm-hmm. and then arguing incessantly about like how to solve them, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so it became like really clear to me that I didn't want to do that anymore, but that was up until that point, like that was my plan. That was like, go for it 100%. That's what I'm going to do. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was that right turning point of, you know, uh, I don't know what to do. So let me do something as like diametrically opposed to philosophy as I can. Yeah. You know, and it's not, it just seemed that way at the time. But sure. I, yeah. I remember that was kind of like a big celebratory moment for, for the other three of us. It was like a really exciting thing of like, he's finally going to get into doing it. And like a couple of things I want to say about it too, because it, like you and I have, have, have been living parallel lives together for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And there are like all these like interesting overlaps where like we both go through kind of like changes together and whatnot. And that was also like a, a moment of turning point for the two of us. You were going the academic route and I was going the film route mm-hmm. and both of us took a very drastic right turn, you know? Yeah. And like one thing I want to say, cause you're talking about philosophy to people listening who were not privy to those conversations. Um, the memory is like, it was really exciting mm-hmm. to be like wrestling with philosophy. Like it, the moment where we started falling into improv and taking it really seriously was also the moment we were in our early twenties. We had just discovered Alan Moore mm-hmm. and just discovered, uh, Alistair Crowley and Chris just discovered Hyatt. Chris mm-hmm. Hyatt yeah. and Robert Anton Wilson mm-hmm. and the Principia Discordia and, and Dell oh, yeah. and, and <laughs> Armando. Like it was just the most exciting time. And again, you and I have been friends for 23 years. We were 23 the night that you decided you were going to start improvising. I remember really clearly because I remember uh, uh, having that feeling of like, this is like the magic year. This is right. like the yeah. beginning of something fruitful. Gosh, that was an exciting time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. And it's, it's great when you watch, um, when you watch like people go through that themselves, like, like I said, we've known each other longer than a lot of like the younger generation of improvisers, but, um, like when you see them discovering things like that, I don't mean like with improv necessarily, but just things in general, like they come across something that, oh yeah, I remember discovering Robert Anton Wilson. That was great. Yeah. The, one of my favorite things, like, um, it was like a period before we didn't have too many responsibilities and, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, finances weren't quite the word that they are now. We were both living above our parents at that point. I just remember having lots of time, to, all of us, the four of us, and then the kind of like crew that we started hanging with in the early days of magnet. Alex Marino became a good friend early on. Sure. Um, it was just like, Lots of late nights. Correct me if you remember this differently than I do, but like lots of late nights and lots of like heart to heart discussions and like a wide range of reading on everything that was interesting and and tons of argument about stuff. And like it was very like we were very passionate about new ideas 
and very passionate about new experiences. And like psychedelia was becoming a big thing in our psychic landscape at that particular moment of time where mm-hmm. it's about like outside the box thinking. And right. Yeah. Um, there's just something that feels very magical to me about that. that. That was like the kind of beginning of it. Now that we're at the 10 year mark, because like, again, I'm getting like nostalgic about it, but like, no, it's true. We've basically become grown ups in improv. Yeah. You and know? that's, you know, I was about to say, yeah, and that's hard. It's not hard, but it's also, it's, um, it's an interesting thing because improv, I don't know, it sort of keeps you young mentally, I want to say. Yeah. Like not yet, not, a, not in the sense of immature, but it keeps a sort of like brain elasticity that like goes away in uh, some, the, the some, norms. some, but not all people, you know, right. <laughs> um, like, I don't know, improv keeps you, like, in a playful, like, playful kind of mindset most of the time. Yeah. Um, whenever you can be, at least, you know. What What do you mean by it's hard? You corrected yourself, but I'm still curious. Right. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, no, I corrected it to interesting. Okay. Um, it's interesting. But you said hard first. Right. Why? Uh, because real life sucks, man. Like, yeah. I've got a shitty office job. Yeah. Um, that I kind of can't get rid of because of student loans, you know, like. Um, uh, I don't know. Paying rent sucks. Paying bills sucks. Paying yeah. taxes sucks. Yeah, it all all of that shit sucks. You Being know? a grown up sucks pretty hard. <laughs> yes, unless you're like a pirate kind of grown up. Unless you're like an ambitious conqueror type, where I think being a grown up is a little bit more of like a master game that you're playing. Right. And believe you me, I have a lot of respect for people of that caliber. I don't happen to be one of those people. No, no. The grappling with the day to day stuff of being a grown up <laughs> truly does suck. Definitely. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think that there's like something that is, can be like a real sand trap about life and improv and, and, and the exact same thing is also really wonderful. It's just one of those like beautiful contradictions that we used to love arguing together so much about at Alice Austin house Mm -hmm. back Mm -hmm. in the day, which is, it does, it keeps you young and it keeps your mind elastic and it's also super easy to get lazy as an improviser. Definitely. Yeah. You get this like high from it all the time and you get this kind of immediate reward and immediate pleasure from it. And and it's pretty easy to kind of like settle for that reward mm-hmm. and, and let kind of time pass or whatever, and then become like inactive in other areas of your life. The flip side to it is like way back in the day, like when you and I were in junior high school, the kind of currency was like comics we were like doing a lot of comics. Mm-hmm. You had your adventures of like the blue uh, brother and the green brother. Is it the blue blue, blue elf? Or blue something? elf and the green yeah. elf. Yeah. I had Hadiri Park and all of my things, making fun of the girls that I secretly had crushes on and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> right. There's something like incredibly like um, those were like the special times to me. The, like those still are like the best memories. And, and when we first got into improv and that like level of passion that was there, just that kind of like excitement at being like right on the brink of like, all right, we're becoming adults now. And there's just like a world of ideas and possibilities and, and fuck obligations and responsibility and fuck like the normal way to do stuff. There was like very much a sense of being part of this, not exactly like a counterculture, but like a culture of like your tribe that you're, and you're like making it up as you go. And and, like, you're living for, for the beauty of ideas and you're living to like discover truth and all that kind of shit. And like the improv lifestyle I find 
does kind of keep that alive in a certain way. Like there's something kind of redundant and useless about being an improviser that can be a trap and is also just the greatest thing uh, imaginable. Right. Your thoughts, please. <laughs> I, redundant and useless. Like I wasn't expecting you to go with those descriptives. But, well, um, it, useless in the sense of like, <laughs> of like, uh, uh, like the old gnarled tree in the story and the, like the Chuangzu story. You know that story? No. The useless tree is the one that's not cut down. The useful tree, the big beautiful tree, is cut oh, down and turned yeah, into yeah, planks yeah. of wood. But the useless, anyway, you get it. It's yeah, superfluous. That's not true, though. Um, well, <laughs> like trees that aren't cut down are very useful. They produce oxygen and whatnot. Um, no, I mean, my thought on that would be um, like improv. I'm not a huge fan of, um, I don't know, there have been a couple books that come out that like sort of improv wisdom for life or things like that. I'm not a huge fan of that stuff, but it's kind of undeniable that the skills that you learn in improv can definitely impact your life outside of improv. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've used the skill. I, I mean, my, when my MA oral exams came up for philosophy and I was at this point, I was already like disillusioned with the whole thing. Um, with all of academia, pretty much burnt out. Like I just wanted no part of it. Um, and I actually took an extra year because I just didn't want to do my orals the year before, mm-hmm. but everything else was done. Like all my credits were taken care of. And I was like, I have to, I have to finish this. Otherwise, like the last two years has been a waste. And I don't even remember the questions, but they're really boring academic questions. I had to answer two of them in an oral exam sitting opposite two philosophy professors. And I had just taken a class with Rachel Hamilton where we did instant expert, uh, which is a fun little exp- uh, uh, exercise. I don't know if you recall it. Yeah, sure. But it's, you know, a single person gets up there and just starts talking about anything at all that they know a lot about. Um, which I think I actually started talking about Martin Buber in that exercise. And mm-hmm. then she pauses you halfway through and gives you a new topic that you probably don't know anything about, but you're supposed to sort of mimic that tone. Um, I'm not exaggerating when I say that that exercise, like, got me through my oral exams. Like, yeah. It's the only reason that I passed them. Yeah. You know, I don't remember what I said. Um, I'd be surprised if I answered the questions, but like sort of just delivered everything with enough confidence and uh, just kind of didn't take shit from the professors. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And I wound up getting a high pass on it. And like, I remember that day, like leaving the school, like leaving the building and just like completely shocked that not only did I pass, but I got a high pass on it. Yeah. And it's all because of that exercise. It's all because of like something that I learned in improv, you know? So to get back to your question, um, actually what how was your question phrased again? I don't remember. <laughs> Let's move on. No, but it's just in terms of like, um, redundant and useless. Yeah. It can make you that, but you can also apply the things you learn in improv to, you know, real life and, you know, have more fun with interacting with people. You oh, know? yeah. Um, <laughs> There's no doubt about that. Right. Well, like in my mind, I don't know uh, shit from Shinola about uh, like the academic lifestyle, but the kind of like f- philosophy prof- professor that you wanted to be when we were younger and the kind of philosophy prof- professor that a person is likely to meet in an actual college mm-hmm. are two very different things. Oh, yeah. And, and I mean, part of that is like what I already said about the under, my, like my undergraduate experience with philosophy was great because yeah. I don't want to say that it was like a dumbed down philosophy um, because it wasn't like we were reading 
you know, actual original sources and stuff like that. It's just it was approached more um, lightly. Like, you know, um, it was approached with more of a sense of, like, the real meaning of philosophy, which is just, like, you know, love of wisdom, yeah. like taking a joy in, I don't know, just thinking about stuff. You yeah. Know? Well, engaging, too. Right. Because it's not just, like, the accumulation of knowledge, but it's, like, engaging with ideas on a way that's, like, meaningful and, and exciting and enriches your experience of life. Right. And enriches your sense of, like, purpose. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, from what you've described to me, it sort of sounds like institutionalized philosophy is, like, a little bit closer to, to like, the administrative cops in the wire. You know what I mean? Like, it's, like, more about, like, how to climb the ladder institutionally and more about, like... Oh, definitely. ...who's asked to kiss and, like, the correct politics of things right. than, than anything having to do with, like, the way that ideas have an impact on, on... Right. ...on how meaningful our lives are. Right. And in no way am I trying to say that, like, I'm anything like McNulty because I'm not really. Yeah, in some but ways. But, like, in philosophy, like, I would be more like McNulty. That, Mc, that McNulty guy oh, yeah. who like, I want to be out there like making cases and like, you know, um, infiltrating whorehouses and shit like that. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas like academic philosophers, um, I don't know. They take, it's not just the sort of getting ahead and the bureaucratic like ambition behind it, but they suck all of the life out of it. It's like the most boring shit you can think of. You know, I want to talk about, um, just free will as a general topic. Like, you're not going to get any of that. You're going to get, like, Heidegger's reading of free will as written by Schopenhauer. You know, like, that's what your paper would be on. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, they want reports on the desk. Right. Neatly typed out with <laughs> with with bullet points in it. Right. The, the lieutenant loves bullet points. Right. That kind of shit. Mm-hmm. Been watching The Wire again recently. Me too. Yeah, great. So that works out really well. <laughs> I... I uh, I use, when I'm teaching my classes, I usually start off the first day by having people play important moments. Like you just get the direction of, of just like initiate with an important moment in somebody's life. And I, I usually make the point that most people's first idea is to think of like big socially approved important moments like Sweet Sixteens or Bar Mitzvahs come up way more than they should. Mm-hmm. Um, um but I, I talk about like how you can also think about like the smaller important moments and like more intimate important moments. And I always use the example of um, uh, your old Jeep and uh, just like driving up and down the length of Highland Boulevard on Staten Island in your Jeep, mm-hmm. stopping at any 7-Eleven that we could find to just like keep the conversation going. Yeah. Which, if memory serves, was just listening to an audio cassette tape of Tom Waits over and over again, being jacked up on coffee into the wee morning hours um, and just talking about nonsense and bullshit. And, and well, I'm sure it was very important to us back then. I'm sure that it was. <laughs> but like... I guess in my mind, like the talk itself ended up being like more significant than anything that we had to say. Yes, yeah, I certainly course. remember talking. I don't remember what we talked about. Right. Yeah, definitely. So like I use that as an example all the time in a class of like, that's another kind of important moment for somebody, the kind mm-hmm. of moments that actually make memories in you and the kind of moments that are actually meaningful to you at the time rather than the ones that like end up in the photo albums. Right. But what you're talking about is kind of like a, um, 
I don't know. We did. We used to do that for for years. Like um, those drives. You yeah. Know? So you're not talking about one drive. You're talking about like almost a condensed, you know, years worth of drives. I guess. And yeah. yeah, in my mind, it's become sort of like a heightened. It's right. like yeah. the one scene or the one image kind mm. of embodies a multi-year experience of just like a chapter of our lives. Yeah. It seems to me that you're the kind of improviser who very much plays the way that we were kind of living that together. That like there's your approach to comedy and your approach to improvising and please don't take this the wrong way is much closer to that idea of like heart to heart almost, if that makes any kind of sense. Like to me, like what was so nice about that period of life. And I'm not, I don't mean to suggest that that period's over or we're never going to have special moments. Well, that, that period's over. Well, that period is definitely over. We don't live on Staten Island anymore. Yeah. That Jeep is probably long Long gone. gone. You know, it's a terrible Jeep. Yeah. The thing was a mess. It it had personality. It did have personality. (laughs) Uh, um, but like, I guess it was like, you're young and you have free time and you're passionate about a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And, and being among friends and sharing time with friends to kind of share passion together is very important to you at that stage of life. And, and it's something that like you see in TJ and Dave shows a lot. They play at that speed. They play in that, in that, in that range of like the possibility of moments like that now occurring on stage are pretty high in their shows. Yeah. You strike me as one of the very handful of people that I can think of who consistently plays like that too. And and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on what approach you bring to, to teaching. Cause I know you have a class coming up. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you hit on, you hit on a lot of it. I don't know that I would call it heart to heart. Um, like I wouldn't take offense to that, but I don't know if that's what I would call it. I knew you wouldn't like that. Um, no, it's not that I don't like it. It's just that I don't know that it's like, you know, it's not necessarily heart to heart because it could be, um, well, I mean, TJ and Dave early on, I think I took a work, I took a workshop with them twice, uh, when they were in town way back. And I would say those two workshops, and this is not to knock any of like my level teachers cause they were great too. Armando's amazing. Um, Rachel Hamilton is amazing, but I would say like the TJ and Dave workshops were probably up there with like most influential on my improv. Like, mm-hmm resonated the most with me. I still steal from like notes that I have from those classes when I'm coaching or teaching. Um, because like what's, uh, what the, the way that I prefer to improvise, uh, is in that style of this doesn't have to be a big moment. Um, like you're sort of, there's always something happening, like whether or not this is that one in a million day, like I've always personally hated that approach of like, why is, you know, get up on stage and then why is this the big thing that we're seeing? Like, um, if that works for people, that's fine. I'm not saying like, it's a, it's a terrible approach, but it's a terrible approach for me. Mm -hmm. Like I don't really care for that. You know, um, I would much prefer to just sort of, you know, relax into a scene and see what's happening. And something is bound to happen that is, you know, followable, let's say. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. It, well, I've heard TJ Jagodowski say that too of, of, he prefers to ask what makes today the same as every other day. Yeah. Because it's like, like you're saying about those Jeep rides, you know, down all the way down Highland Boulevard and back. 
Um, you can't, if you and I were going to get on stage right now and try to reenact one of those Jeep rides, I'm, I'm sure we would have absolutely no problem. But it wouldn't be a Jeep ride that actually happened. It would just be like sort of that feeling, like that sort of experience, yeah. you know? And like you say, it seems like one experience in your head, but that was over years we did this, yeah. you know? Um, I don't know where I was going with that. But that's kind of like the thing with like a mundane style of play. And I don't mean to say mundane as an insult. I mean mundane as, as like... I take mundane as a compliment. Great. The thing about like a mundane style of play, though, is that like if we were to put up on stage those those um, drives down Holland Boulevard, right, and we're absolutely faithful to real life, the chances are pretty good that it would not be a terribly engaging scene. I don't know about that because I can remember shows with you. Uh, there was one theory of everything show in particular where Mark was out, and it was just you and I, mm-hmm. and. The entire show, and I remember it being received pretty well. I had fun with the show, and you know, people seemed to genuinely like it afterward. And the entire show was just us sitting in a row, like I was sort of behind you. And we worked it out at some point that we were in a canoe on a lake. We were sort of like at a lake house. Um, I think the craziest thing that we discovered was that my sister was like developmentally disabled, and mm-hmm. you, and you were dating her. Yeah. Yes. Right. I remember. And. That. Um, it, it wasn't so much a thing. That's just like the most interesting detail I can think of from that show. Yeah. But it was fine. We never moved. You're talking about like 45 minutes. We never moved. It was just more or less a conversation. Right. And I think a believable conversation that might happen between these two people who are friends, one of whom is dating the other one's developmentally disabled sister. Yeah. And, and it's like, yeah. You know? Yeah, but I would argue that even in that scene where not a lot like happened in a very technical sense, there's still like an encounter between these people. That Definitely, yeah. I don't want to say that nothing happened as in nothing happened. Um, very little. It was a very mundane scene. It was literally right. rowing across a lake for yes. 40 minutes. And that's, that's all that happened. Yes. It, it wasn't, there weren't cut to, right. you know, yes. marrying my challenged sister. Right. It wasn't like, you know, cut to your half challenged babies. You right. Know? <laughs> like, right. We cut to the half challenged babies <laughs> <laughs> and we cut back. They might not be challenged at all. They, it's all I'm saying probably it's a chromosomal it's okay. roll of the dice, you know? But my point is that like, I would probably argue that not only even with like a more mundane approach to play, but especially with a more mundane approach to play mm-hmm. the, the kind of like total effect should contain some sort of feeling of like a special encounter has happened. Even if nothing out of the ordinary occurs in the scene. Right. Like if you walk away as an audience member from one of those shows, um, not giving a shit about either of these people or not feeling like it was, there was like no atmosphere to it. Mm -hmm. There was no sense of this being kind of special or you you don't, you don't feel kind of like grateful in a certain sense to have shared this hour with these people. Mm -hmm. then it's probably not going to be working. Whereas like the way that like, yeah, you could do a scene. that's just two people driving in a car, drinking coffee and walk away from that, like absolutely loving these people and absolutely feeling like you've been invited to kind of share your life with them for a chunk of time. Right. Even though nothing particularly big or, or important happens, it feels special. It feels like there was an encounter or an exchange between people. I guess that's what I mean by heart to heart is like not necessarily that it's about talking about your feelings 
or like confessing your deep secrets. It's just more of a feeling of like, even though not much is objectively happening physically right. and there's nothing crazy going on, uh, like on some level there's an exchange in which these people kind of something trades off with them. Right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the class that um, I'm going to be teaching in March, the patience class is going to, there's going to be a lot of that in the class, like just sort of, I mean, it's called patience, but just sort of focusing on being comfortable with quote unquote, nothing happening Yeah, in a sense of like, it's not really possible for nothing to happen. Yeah. You know, something's going to be happening, happening. And, you know, as long as you aim for both that encounter with your partner and, try to have some specific idea in your head about like what your relationship with them is, you know, cause I, you know, like I say, you know, that canoe show again with you, I don't remember how we happened upon that. We were just old friends, you know, it just, it just kind of happened, you yeah. know, it, well, I remember a lot of that being kind of like <clears throat> reading, reading the quiet in like the in-between moments, mm-hmm. like not treating the quiet as like emptiness, but kind of like, reading the sort of tension that was there and letting that give ideas for like what our backstory was together. Right. Which, that to me was always super important in those shows because I, I should, for anybody who doesn't know theory of everything, it was the two of us and Mark Rainier, mm-hmm. and we took like a perverse delight in kind of, uh, doing the most boring things possible. <laughs> Remember our last show was, uh, you and I were roommates and Mark came knocking at our door at 6 AM because he had like terrible stomach pains and needed to go to a doctor, but the doctor didn't open till 9 AM. So the whole show was us just waiting <laughs> for the doctor. To open. <laughs> yeah. A lot of waiting, tons of waiting. But yeah, if you think about it, like a lot of the best stuff in life happens, like when you're just waiting yeah. or like, you know, like that's when you have a chance to like relax a bit and depending on who you were around, like, uh, you know, when, when we were growing up, it's like you and I were around each other. So there were those like intense philosophical conversations while driving down Highland Boulevard. Yeah. You know? Um, but yeah, and I am not in any way knocking the sort of style of improv that, uh, sort of goes counter to all of this. So yeah. like, let's make crazy shit happen and follow it. That's great for people who can do it well and who like doing that. It's just, I find it a lot more rewarding to, you know, slow things down a bit. Yeah. Yeah. What were the, cause you had mentioned the TJ and Dave workshops. I was lucky enough to be in one of them with you and it had the exact same impression. I still, I, I remember posting on MySpace the notes I took from that workshop. Yeah. And as recently as like a year ago, I would occasionally go back to MySpace to, uh, reference those notes again because mm-hmm. it was the kind of thing where it's like you get six notes from tj and dave and you spend the next 10 years trying to practice those notes oh yeah yeah no they boiled it down uh well i mean boiled it down it's a bunch of stuff that they said but it was all kind of very on point and like very like very simple but the type of simple where it's like still mind-blowing yeah you know? there was also like in the early days at the theater i remember you and i were both in the kevin dorf Masterclass. That was another one. Yeah. Like very, very influential. Yeah. That was a a really special class. And, and like one of those like exciting ones where you look around the room and it's like, Jesus, every great improviser at this theater is in this class. That was another one of those classes where, um, I don't know. We, I remember doing, uh, I think the exercise he had us do was really just 
we were we were on stage for ten minutes, and he did a lot of matching energy stuff. Yeah, um, it was like mostly matching energy. Yeah, and that that was basically the idea of this exercise. But the uh, the frame of it was you're just you're on stage for ten minutes. You know, he he had a timer with him. He was like, go. You know, and it was Matt Evans and I, and Matt Matt Evans, um, incredibly funny guy. Uh, but at least at the time. Uh, even even still, I would I guess I would call him kind of a laid back player. Yeah, he's funny yeah. as hell. Like one of the funniest guys you'll ever see. Um, and anybody who's not too familiar with him, go see him in Laser. He's awesome. Yes. Um, and Kiss Punch Bomb. He does Kiss Punch. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's amazing. Uh, but he and I were did this exercise together, and it was ten minutes. We did. There were no words spoken because it was all matching energy and we're both fairly laid back people. So it kind of just started with the two of us just sitting there and that's what it was. And then like one of us started tapping our feet. Mm -hmm. So that started to heighten, but the entire scene was basically just like, um, almost like a drum duel, like with our feet, like we were tapping out rhythms and stuff and just trying to like one up each other. You know, I remember that as being one of the funniest scenes in the whole class. Well, I mean, Dorf like, seemed to like it. And to me that was wild because it's like wild and freeing because it's like, that's the nothing happening that I'm talking about. Like Matt and I were like connected in it, but you know, in terms of your typical improv show is like, that's crazy. You know, (laughs) do you, uh, so everybody who was in that class has something special to say about it, whether they loved it or hate it. Most people loved it. A couple of people had a difficult time with it. Mm -hmm. But like everybody agrees that it was like a really special class and four track kind of came out of that class. That was like a really big starting point for those guys. And for that form, the boss was around. I wasn't on the boss yet, but um, that was also kind of a turning point for the boss when, when uh, like Dorf gave you a couple of suggestions about the jazz Freddy. And that was sort of like the moment where the boss got really good and started having the first string of like really awesome shows it was a really special class. I don't remember much about it. Do you like, what did we do that made it so awesome? I, I mean, I don't remember the whole, the entire like class, but I remember parts of it. Like I remember that Matt Evans thing. Um, he had us do things like just massage each other's heads, you know, like <laughs> for like 40 yeah. minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Which was weird, but it's also like he's just like DJ and Dave. Everything he said, um, like he's talking to us during those 40 minutes and like everything he said is like, yeah, no, this makes sense. Um, It's only in hindsight that I'm like, yeah, we just fucking massage each other's head for 40 minutes. Yeah, (laughs) But I'm sure that it drove the point he was trying to make home at the time, you know. I just don't remember what the point was. Right. I don't. uh, That one, I don't either. But um (laughs) That was still like a, a phase where I was taking copious notes in every yeah. class. I, I have like volumes of notebooks sitting at home. I don't have any notes for that class. I might. I have to. I'm gonna have to take a look. Yeah. But, um, yeah. It was just one of those interesting ones where it's like nothing specific was said that was like, oh, okay, that's something to work on. It yeah. was just something about like the spirit of that room that like really got to you. Well, I remember another thing he had us do, and it may have been that sort of ten minutes on stage thing. Um, during that exercise, he had us like pull up the chairs to basically line the stage. So like, um, where the front row, you know, there was no space between the chairs and, and the stage. Mm -hmm. 
but lining the outside of it so that the class was like the fourth wall pretty much. And I don't remember exactly why he did that, but um, like I have vague memories of it just being like all about support, like from the rest of the class. And um, you're going to be on stage for 10 minutes, but don't worry because we're practically on stage with you or Mm -hmm. something like that. You know, I remember that. I seem to remember that also being about like you're surrounded by a wall of attention. There's like, there's no place to go or no place to hide. Yeah, that could totally be it. So like it had that effect of like every single thing that you're doing matters and is magnified. And and there was something awesome about like, sometimes I feel a little bit like, um, what's the name of the guy in Deadwood who runs the, uh, the bar that Wild Bill is killed in? Tom. Tom Tom Nuttall. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry for the spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen Deadwood yet. Yeah. Uh, It's a big, big reveal what that guy's name is. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And the bar owner is next week on Deadwood. Right. Tom Nuttall. (laughs) (laughs) And you pretty much just spoiled the first two episodes. Sorry about that. The rest of the show gets a lot better. Sorry. Yeah, it does. The first two episodes are mostly exposition about Tom Nuttall. Uh, (laughs) And then you never really, he doesn't matter anymore. (laughs) He comes back. He's likable. He's great. Tom, Tom is great. <laughs> Sometimes like I think about like the early, early days of Magnet. And there's like the group of us who were around Juvie Hall when Armando was renting out Juvie Hall. Mm-hmm. And um, and the group of us that were there like when the place first opened up. Um, and it feels a little bit to me like the Tom Nuttall era of Deadwood. Like those kind of like pioneer days. Like the Magnet back then was definitely a much more rustic place than it is now oh yeah and we all had like our knives at the ready oh yeah in case uh others didn't make a good impression you had to it was <laughs> tough it was tough going and one of the things that i really enjoyed about that era and not to knock our current era current era is amazing mm-hmm. um please visit us at our new magnet training center on uh, 32nd street this incredible facility great yeah. incredible facility um, but again, I'm being nostalgic now because we're at the 10 year anniversary and the magnet's grown considerably as has the entire improv community in New York. There was a kind of, there were classes and, and stuff like TJ and Dave coming around or Dwarf's class that like weren't really about how to tighten up your comedy or how to play sharper forms or, or how to get on teams or whatever. There were classes that were I don't know what they were. They were almost like experimental improv. Yeah. Um I, I think Dorf's class was just called like a master's class. Yeah. Um and I think like Armando did a master's class at some point really early on too. And I don't think I ever told him, but like I, I wanted to suggest to him that he just like rename it Armando's playground or something. Because yeah. yeah, there were classes all about like you know, you've all been improvising for a long time now. Uh, what's some shit you might want to play with? Or, Which we or, yeah. weren't at all, hilariously enough. Right, We've yeah. been improvising for like two years. <laughs> but it was. It was like, what's some shit that you want to play with? Yeah. There, there was something... That's like part of the spirit of like that era in our lives to me where like it wasn't just about like how do I get better at comedy or how do I parlay this into into a career or whatever there was like you were tapping into some kind of like mystery as like lame as that sounds there was something about like oh dwarf's class made a huge impression on all of us and yet nobody can really remember anything that we did or what the point of the class was (laughs) but it like because it wasn't really about that point and it wasn't really about something that you could 
draw a lesson from and then use that to perfect your heralds together. It was about like tapping into just like this mystery of what happens when two people encounter each other on a stage and, and every moment counts. And whether that involves words and games or whether it involves tapping your feet for 10 minutes. Right. Um, it, it's sort of like you just call attention to the uniqueness of like this particular moment. Sure. I don't, I don't know. I guess I'm just being very nostalgic for the pioneer days where that was such an important part of our lives. Right. Well, I, I mean, I don't, ne- I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you, but it could just be that you're remembering it that way. Yeah, maybe. You know, because that was you know, you've already been through this sort of like pivotal life moment that accompanied all of this, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it may just be that we were so like young that we took it that way, you know, like that we took it as, um, that sort of experiment over sharpening, you know, like, um, there definitely was a wild West feel. Um, but things were pretty raw back then. Yeah. But that was also in the sense of like, magnet had just opened like the community was far far smaller you know like so small that there were nights of the week where there were no shows yeah most of the nights of the week i think when we first opened we were only we were only open two nights a week i think right and you know if if uh i was just talking to alex about this the other day if you had an idea to put together a crazy ass halloween show where um you want to build a demon costume out of a deflated basketball and some crutches you know you could do that, and we yeah. did. We did do that. Yeah, <laughs> I, that was a pretty terrible show. Yeah, like, we did a lot of crap in those days. Yeah, I mean that's the type of show that wasn't fun for us or the audience. Yeah. You know? But you know, you, you could do that stuff. We learned pretty quick, though. <laughs> yeah, I guess you're right. I guess yeah. I'm not trying to make the argument that like you know it was like a golden age or whatever. I, I right. it's just like that it was new and that the thing that made it exciting and, and was the newness of it and was this kind of sense of, I guess for me, something very similar to like when we would end up uh, like sitting at Al Austin house at 1am, just like arguing over like Buber or whatever the hell yeah. we were arguing about. The sense of like, I don't know, things that didn't seem to matter too much to like, the straights in the world. Right. Yeah. Actually mattering a lot and actually being like what the good stuff is like, like here's the point of it all is 10 minutes of tapping our feet together. Mm -hmm. I just, I read a book recently called um, the invisible actor. It's pretty good. I recommend it. Um, by, uh, by this Japanese actor named Yoshi Oida. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And he described, an exercise in the book that's just two people you kind of like put your hands out together and you just focus all of your attention on your hands and the entire exercise is just call and response with hands that you're not like trying to like mimic an actual thing you're not like miming object work it's just like i move my finger and then you respond somehow and then i respond to you and back and forth and if you try it um and do it for a few minutes it actually does have like a pretty surprising effect of like you definitely concentrate on that limb and and right it it alters your field of awareness but reading it and, and trying it out it reminded me an awful lot of that dwarf class mm-hmm. there's just that thing of like there's something special about this that i can't exactly explain yeah because like another thing about the dwarf class too 
because it's like, why, how come sitting with Matt Evans and tapping your feet for 10 minutes can be the funniest thing to happen in, in an eight week class that was filled with really funny things. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I don't, I, yeah, I don't know if it, if that was the funniest thing. It's go cool. with me. On. It was I, up yeah. there. It was up there. It was certainly memorable. Right. I remember <laughs> Dorf's note to me. He like, I remember he didn't like really give a lot of individual notes. No. Nor would he set no, up exercises. No, but he did do that exercise with us. And I, I just remember this now where we had to do two person scenes where we played the other person. Yes. And that was very difficult and terrifying for very me because yeah. I got up on stage with, um, Paul Downs. Yes. And <laughs> Paul Downs on Broad City and Comedy Central. Yeah. Watch Paul and then come watch Charlie. And, and, and any, yeah, anybody who knows who Paul Downs is, um, uh, we couldn't be like more opposite yeah. in, in everything and like how we carry ourselves, how we talk, how we move, you know? Yeah. So that, yeah, that was terrifying. Um, he would do this thing where he would like, you would play for like an hour and then he would talk for like 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. And like sometimes the conversation didn't even have anything to do with what you had just done. He would just like talk. But then in the middle of the talk, he might point to one person and say something to you that would be like, ah. Yeah. And then you, that's how you would get the note from him. Yeah, he told you to play like Paris Hilton or something, didn't he? he his exact note to me was, I want you to play a cunt. Yeah. I was like, okay, but I got, he, he I got it. he did mention Paris Hilton. He did. He said, that. Yeah, yeah. he said like, think Paris Hilton. And then um, John Murray and I did a scene that yeah. was my favorite personal scene in that class yeah. where we just played and it was another silent scene we were just like two paris hiltons like yeah and it was a very like abstract scene we were just like moving around taking pictures of of ourselves sure but it was it, the thing that was so nice about that i remember it really specifically because it felt like um just like an unlocking like it wasn't a scene exactly mm-hmm. but it just sort of felt like unlocking something that i normally would never ever do yeah yeah and you know guys like Dorf or, or Armando who have been not only like doing this, but like watching this and coaching this and teaching this for so long, um, just to be able to like pinpoint that in you as like, however long ago this was like you were, you were not improvising for all that long at the time, but it's pretty amazing that like guys like that can just sort of like pinpoint that and be yeah. like, yep, this is, this is what you need to do. You yeah. Know? <laughs> like a personalized note like that. Yeah. I always like, I, un- unless it's really, really obvious stuff that people are doing where it's like you can give them an, adju- an adjustment or something, I always hesitate to give notes because, uh, like when I'm coaching or whatever, like I say, unless it's something obvious, like you just said no when you should have said yes. Um, but personal notes, and like there seems to be a huge push for personalized notes. Mm-hmm. And I always hesitate to do that because it's like I can't tell you how to improvise, you know? Um, it's such a stylistic thing from person to person. You can definitely reinforce the rules that tend to work, but then you go and watch something like TJ and Dave where they break every improv rule you've ever heard. And it's still amazing, you know? (laughs) Um, but yeah, guys like Dorf, they could just sort of pinpoint that. I think when you're, when you're in the realm of like personal notes to you as an improviser, um, there's something when you're receiving personal feedback, it, it gives you the sense of a certain amount of control because it's like, okay, I know what to work on. And so I can take the steps to work on that and develop it. Right. And, and so you can like feel a sense of like progress. Yeah. It's sort of unusual for people to take your stand of like, I'd rather not give personal notes. Right. Um, well, it, 
and like I, I just want to emphasize, it's like there are occasionally like glaring things where it's like, no, I have to kind of say something about that, like habit wise. But um, beyond that, like I, I don't think I've ever had the impulse to point at anyone and say, you know, play a cunt. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I don't know what that would feel like. I, I don't know if I could pinpoint that in someone so early on, you know? Coming from you, it would probably be a really strange <laughs> note, too. Coming from Dorf, it was like, I get it. I know what you mean, Dorf. Right. Coming from you, I'd probably be like, did I did I hurt his feelings? What happened? <laughs> but it, it is like, it's really interesting because I, I, I think I know where you're coming from on that right. idea of like, not really feeling comfortable giving those personal, not being able to tell someone how they should be playing. Right. So let me ask you this, when you're coaching and when you're teaching, mm-hmm. um, you're not approaching it from the perspective of I'm going to kind of guide you step by step to improve your performance. So w- where are you coming from? Like, what are you, what are you going after? What is the thing? What's the experience that you're trying to create for your class or create for the group that you're working with? Well, it's not about not wanting to help people improve. Like I'm all about that. Um, it's just, yeah, it's not going to be some step-by-step deconstruction of somebody's, you know, improvising. Mm-hmm. Um, there, you know, there are sort of, I guess, broad areas that, that I can sort of cover and like, you know, um, show, show improvisers a thing or two. But after that, it's kind of like, I kind of see my role more as like a, more of like a guide, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, like, I don't know. Yeah. I, that's not even like the perfect metaphor either, but um, yeah, I don't know if a better metaphor is going to come to me. But yeah, it's more about like just sort of nudging people, yeah. you know, nudging people in a direction that will probably be good for them. When Mick Napier is teaching, he doesn't comment on the content of your scenes at all. Right. Like when he's giving notes, he doesn't talk about what you created. He talks about what you, as an improviser, do. Right. Talks about your habits and your patterns and gives you instructions on like things to try out to break those habits and patterns. And it is um, very interesting to get direction from him and to kind of hear that stuff. I find that when I have tried to do that in the past, I have done nothing but fuck people up. Right. That like for me, when I'm teaching, I actually have to veer away from telling you what you as an improviser are doing. I find a lot more success when I'm talking about what these characters are doing. And when I like really address the content of the scenes, not from a perspective of this was good, this was bad, this was funny, this wasn't funny, right. but to like really talk about like observations about the characters, yeah. I, I feel like I indirectly get to better insights into what you're doing as an improviser than sure. if I just told you. Yeah, and plus the, the character's behavior is like a super important indicator because if it's, it's usually... Uh, painfully obvious when you're watching a scene and a character does something that you're like that no that character wouldn't do that what the hell just happened mm-hmm. and whatever that means whether it means that the improviser panicked or the improviser um you know because you've got the improviser their character like the two separate entities up there you know and hopefully the character is taking over at some point in a scene mm-hmm. <laughs> you know but if you have some kind of a glitch there um, usually those moments are pretty painful where it's like a scene is going on and it's like, mm, I don't believe that that would have really happened or I don't believe that that would have really been said. Yeah. You know, so you can pinpoint moments like that, but 
to me that like you it's more like just kind of discussing that and and getting from the improviser like what was going what was going on what were you thinking at that point yeah like it's i don't i don't know that i'll ever get to the point where i can go from that like from that discussion to pinpointing exactly what happened you know what are you going to be working on in your patients class when does the patients class go up when does it start uh march i think it's march 4th it's wednesdays in march cool Uh, yeah and um i've been i don't have like a very very strict course plan down yet but i've been like gathering the exercises that i want to do and stealing a lot from the art of patience which i taught you know a couple of years ago uh, a few rounds of um there's going to be a lot of you know probably a lot of listening exercises probably a lot of uh silent exercises like being um comfort comfortable in silence you know yeah uh there's definitely going to be some stuff that I'm stealing from TJ and Dave that they did in their workshops way back when. That's always a lot of fun. Longer scenes, you know. I don't think that I'm going to approach that whole 10-minute scene thing the, like the same way that Dorf did, but there'll be some stuff like that where it's just like, yeah, you've got 10 minutes, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And talk a little bit, because uh, um, you're also directing, the next director series coming up in March. Yes. Rashomon. Yes. What is Rashomon? Uh, Rashomon, the uh, the name was stolen from a movie of the same name, an Akira Kurosawa movie. Uh, great movie. I've watched it a bunch of times. The last time that I watched it, like sort of in preparation for the director series, um, I didn't enjoy it quite as much, but I think that's because my memory of it was just better than, yeah. you know, what it should have been. I also um, find the older I get, <laughs> the less patient I am with movies. Right. There's there's that too. It's definitely, you can tell that it was made in the 50s, I'm guessing. Yeah. yeah. You can tell that it was made in a time where, you know, cinematic art was something different than it is now. Yeah. Um, still still a great movie. Highly recommended. Um, but yeah, if, for anybody who hasn't seen the movie, it's basically like, um, we're, we're taken through four different perspectives on this in this event that happens it's like you know a bandit and a couple in the woods uh, or rather a couple comes across a bandit in the woods and you know all we basically know is that at the end of all of this the husband is dead uh the, they capture the bandit they find the wife but we are then for the movie taken through the four different perspectives on this of um you know we get the bandit side of things we get the wife's side of things it's really kind of replaying the same event only this time you know one of my favorite parts is i think it's in the fourth perspective is just a guy who sort of witnessed it like he sort of in the in the bushes and witnessed it Mm. and the three takes before it there's a sword fight between the bandit and the husband and um in those three takes they're both like sort of master swordsmen and having like this really exciting like sword fight in that fourth take like when they replay it it's the two of them basically like you know they have no idea how to use a sword (laughs) and that that fight sequence is just like ridiculous it's one of my favorite parts of the movie it reminds me of an Um, episode of malcolm in the middle where where uh lois and hal are are 
dancing like how uh, Lois is trying to get Hal to dance with her for the whole episode and at the end they finally dance and the dance is just this like beautiful locked in thing <laughs> and then it cuts from the point of view of the kids watching it and you yeah. see like, they're just like knocking shit off the shelves and like <laughs> it's like horrible <laughs> yeah totally there was a there was an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia like that too yeah um, where the gang of them get like trashed like super drunk and they're at a high school reunion and they sort of put on a musical number yeah which uh, they film in like this super high budget, like well lit extravaganza, like an Oscar performance or something. And then they cut to like the rest of the room, just staring at these drunk people yelling on stage. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's what the show, that's what I had in mind for the show. Rashomon mm. um, is that idea. And it's been super fun working on it. It's a fantastic cast. I don't want to pat myself on the back, but I'm pretty good at picking like, Really fantastic people who is, do things. Who is in the cast of Rashomon <laughs> coming this March? Um, oh, shit, now I have to remember. <laughs> um, Ivy Hong, uh-huh. uh, Neil Pohl, uh-huh. uh, Christina Dabney, uh-huh. Eleanor Lewis. These are good people. Peter Appleby, um, John Ross, uh, Damon Ketron, and Quentin Loader. By God, man, you've done yeah. a great job casting yeah. this show. <laughs> no, but it's it's been a lot of fun working on it. Um it's it's not going it's not going to be like you know a replaying of the movie by any means there's going to be a lot of other stuff going on but there will be some of that stuff where we are going to see uh different perspectives on the same thing that just happened you know um it was a lot of fun in the very first rehearsal we did uh it was fun for me i have no idea how it was for the cast because I just didn't, I had them do a mono scene and without warning, I just said like, okay, uh, now play the same exact mono scene as close as you can to like verbatim. Mm-hmm. Like I say, I don't know how fun it was for them, but it was fun for me to watch. <laughs> How'd they do? Uh, pretty good. Yeah. I mean, not aiming for the type of perspective shifting that actually happens in the movie Rashomon. I just, I wanted them to do as close to um, a real replay as possible you still saw like deviations. You still saw things come out of order. You saw, yeah. you saw certain things happen different ways, you know, different ways that people phrase things the second time around. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. You can't help the deviation. Even I bet every single person in that scene has a different memory of what happened in that scene. I bet they do. And it's, it's a really fascinating like subject area um, to think about, to talk about or whatever that, that perspectivism, because yeah. it's, I think it's also kind of, one of the things that's true in real life, like you've got hundreds of people on any given block in the city at any given time, they could all see something happen. And I'm sure that they all remember it differently. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, um, and place themselves in that story differently too. Like you always oh, yeah. remember things in the way that sort of makes you the main attraction. Oh yeah. Um, I've done it before. Um, I'm not going to be able to think of a good example, but I know that I've done it before. Like I've placed myself inaccurately in a story. <laughs> well, I'm always amused, you know, like in, in movies where like, you know, somebody gives like the big, like heartfelt speech to the girl that they've always loved at senior prom. Right. And like all the other students are like standing around, like watching the speech, like hanging on their every word and stuff. Right. Like, in real life, nobody gives even half a shit about you or anything that's going on with you at all. Right. Even the people that are very close to you don't care that much. Um, but like, I oftentimes feel like my mind just makes this assumption that everybody's standing around watching me, hanging on my every word to see what I'm right. going to do well, next. Well, yeah, we are all the main character of, yeah. of our story. You know? Yeah, 
<laughs> it'd be it'd be interesting to meet somebody who wasn't the main character of their story. They'd probably either be like a little bit a little bit all over the place or yeah. or very like Saint Francis or something. Like somebody who seems like yeah, deceptively or simple. Buddha. Or Buddha. Uh, Dalai Lama. I bet that they would be irritating people. Maybe not the Dalai Lama. He seems all right. But I bet right. that they would be like, you would feel irritated by their example. Yeah. Yeah. It's like in Brothers Karamazov, you know, like Christ come back, comes back and right. like everybody hates him and kills him all over again. Oh, yeah. Again. No, we would definitely kill him again. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> yeah. When you get a taste of the real thing, it just pisses you off. You mm-hmm. don't want to like... Because then you have to kind of like confront like all the lies and stupid things that you tell yourself. Well, I mean, Jesus was very likely an asshole. Um, oh, that's like arguable. Buddha, Buddha and that's the Dalai Lama are different. Maybe no, not. It's, it's likely that he was. Well, according um, to Osho, he was more Gurdjieff than he was Buddha. He was more about like provoking people. But then, as we both know, Osho right. had a tendency to see things filtered through the lens of Osho. Sure. Yeah. But he, I mean, Jesus, Jesus is probably more of a similar character to Socrates than he was to Buddha, you know, possibly though his parables are certainly more mysterious than Socrates. We are getting so far off topic. I don't think so. <laughs> I miss this. I miss these conversations, man. Religion, man. I could talk about it all day. I really could. What are you reading now? Uh, right now I'm reading a book by Lon Milo Duquette, uh, which is cost called ask babylon Ooh, yeah it's um this is what actually turned me on to uh, alistair crowley's crowley or crowley however you say it um it's crowley i've heard it said crowley i don't care you know it's one of the things i like about this guy um lon milo duquette is he wrote another book that i read that i loved it's called the chicken kabbalah Mm -hmm. and i think in the intro he spends a good amount of time like talking about how ridiculous it is for people to say that there is one correct pronunciation of Kabbalah. Because you get like the sort of hardcore mystics who spend their life, um, you know, studying the Kabbalah and, and shit. And they think that they have like the one true pronunciation of it. And it's like, that's fucking ridiculous. Like yeah. say it however you want. You know? <laughs> Same with Crowley. My like my read on Kabbalah is like, it's, a discipline that's meant to do two things ultimately to you. One, it's meant to overwhelm your, your like reasoning critical mind with so much information and so many different points of reference and interconnectedness that you're basically forced to constantly reflect on the meaning of it all and the interpenetration of it all. Two, uh, it's meant to just make you start laughing at everything all the time because it's such a ridiculous right. exercise and such a stupid way to use your brain that you have to lighten up and and just smile about life. Right. I, and I agree with you wholeheartedly, but there's a world of Kabbalists out there who would just like have you crucified for thinking. That. I know, but it's just like, it, it's, it's like the administration and the wire, man. It, yeah. You know what I mean? Like people become experts at things and then it becomes more about like, the the way that you kick it up the ladder you know what i mean sure. like it becomes more about that sort of hierarchy megan was just reading this is completely off topic she was reading an article in the new yorker that uh modern research is suggesting that the use of psychedelic drugs might be able to 
uh, um, re-imprint criminals from committing hard crimes. It might like turn people uh, uh, into uh, yeah more of a civic minded life. And it's like you pieces of shit. There would have been so much you progress. Sons of bitches. There would have been so much progress. Timothy if Leary Timothy said Leary, exactly yeah. that in 1962. You maniacs. And, and he was doing work like that. Yeah. Um, he was doing work specifically in prisons with with rehabilitation centers. Yeah. And. You know, he failed. He broke the chain of command, though. Right. And he got severely punished for it. It yes. wasn't about the actual content of what he had to say. It, people got really pissed off that he broke chain of command. Yes. I, I mean, I think it's both because um, I think that there was also uh, um, sort of moral, like Christian right backlash against what he was doing as well. Yeah, and there was a government backlash against it too. People yeah. were very uncomfortable with the suggested use of drugs, but I would still argue he he went rogue, and that's the thing that made people more upset. Well, he than meant, he went even more rogue afterward. It's like you want to. Well, he lost his mind. You know. <laughs> he went too far. Excess was his flaw. Right. But I'll tell you what, Timothy Leary had a big smile on his face to the bitter end, my friend. Of course he did. That guy was onto something. <laughs> what are three books that people should read, in your opinion? In my opinion, oh wow. Uh, there's a lot of pressure. Yeah. Um, it's a deliberate. I'm going to have to throw up uh, Robert Anton Wilson's Quantum Psychology. Fabulous. Agreed. Um, there are so many books that I think are fantastic, but it's like I don't think everybody should read them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's go with Quantum Psychology. Uh, I I really enjoyed, what's the guy's name? Bryson? Bill Bryson, I think his name is. Oh, yeah. Um, what, the, what is it called? A Brief History of Nearly Everything. That was a really fascinating book. Yeah. Uh, now, yeah, now I'm specifically thinking like general knowledge, which would be. <laughs> yeah, I know. You want to do, it's a great question because you want to do like the most all encompassing book imaginable. Yeah. And then I'm just going to throw in the Principia Discordia. I love it. Yeah. Uh, the Hodge and the Podge, my yeah. friends. <laughs> the class is Patience. It starts in March. Yes. The show is Rashomon. That also shows in March. Yes. Thursdays at nine. And then before that, people can see you Thursdays at eight with the boss. Yes. Dr. Chaz Whitcroft, pleasure talking. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, friend. Uh, and thank you, guys. You've been listening to the Magnet Theater Podcast. A huge thank you to Grant Goldberg, our engineer, to Evan Ford Barden, our producer, and to you guys for listening. This is the Magnet Theater Podcast as brought to you by the Magnet Theater. We offer classes and improvisation, sketch comedy, musical improv, storytelling. If it's funny, we are teaching it. If that sounds like something you'd be interested in trying, we also offer free weekly classes. What? That's right. Free weekly intro classes. Let me re-specify and say they're intro classes. You can't just take a free class every week. Well, I guess technically you could, but it's one class and okay, whatever it is. You can find out all about that stuff, plus our wonderful shows, which go up seven nights a week on our website. That website is magnettheater.com. My guest has been Charlie Woodcroft. I have been Lewis Cornfield. You have been the audience. Hey, happy, happy uh, uh, almost spring, guys. Really, hug somebody that you love, okay? Be nice. Okay, thanks. Bye. You've been listening to The Magnet Podcast. 